morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. If you'd like to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 12, that's where we'll be this morning. You guys are brave sitting up in the balcony when it's this hot. Father, we thank you for your word and the way that it ministers to us, encourages us. That's what we need during this season while we think about Brandon's passing. We want to hear from you. We want the encouragement that only the scriptures offer. Pray that I'd be your vessel to provide that this morning to each person who's here, um, whether physically or tuning in online. We see death as an enemy that Christ has defeated, and so we need to be encouraged uh, about what that means and that truth, and I pray that you would do justice to these verses as we talk about grieving. Um, we see the example of David in, the two, in these two instances and how he one, one time he grieved well and another time he didn't, and help us to learn from his example and why we can grieve with hope. I pray that you would speak to each of your people here, Lord. And if there's anyone who's unsaved, that even today would be the day of salvation for them as they think about um, the reality that they'll face death someday and stand before you and that they want to have the righteousness of Christ when they do and have their righteous, unrighteousness given to him and paid for on the cross. We lift up all these requests to you in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. The title of this morning's sermon is When a Child is Taken, Part 2. After Brandon's, we were in a series, if you're new to joining us, on Wisdom. And following Brandon's passing, I didn't feel like I could continue that series because we're all so heavy-hearted associated with uh, what had taken place. And so just interrupted that series for these two sermons. Um, we'll resume talking about wisdom next Sunday. I wanted to bring Scripture on to bear on the situation, which meant looking at accounts in Scripture of individuals losing children and learning from them and seeing what God in His Word had to say about those accounts. Um, the loss of children in Scripture does occur more frequently than you might expect, and I believe that's because it can occur more frequently than we might expect in our lives. It's one of the horrors of living in a fallen world. And so even if you haven't lost a child um, that's been born, I know many of us have experienced miscarriages, and so I hope that these sermons will be an encouragement to you. If you're a member of the body of Christ, you need to be able to minister to people who have lost children, whether through miscarriage or after that child's been born, and so you need to be equipped in this way. Last week, we looked at Elijah and Elisha raising two children from the dead, and because those children were quickly restored to the parents, they did not experience much grief. I mean, there was the grief after the child died, but then pretty soon they received the child back. This morning, we're going to look at something different. We're going to see a father who lost a child and did not have that child returned to him, and it's, so there's particular application for the situation that we're experiencing and it's going to give us a real window into grief and how to deal with it, how to grieve, how not to grieve. Uh, I think it's very instructive for us. The context is um, David loses the child of adultery and murder. Well, he loses the child as punishment for the adultery and murder that he committed. Now, last week, I think it was the second lesson, I told you that the, when we lose a child, it's not punishment. God isn't punishing us. Most of the time, that is the case. In fact, for parents who have lost children, they might have to resist the temptation to blame themselves or feel at all responsible for what has taken place. But in the situation with David, this is one of those rare, rare circumstances where the uh, parent was involved in what took place with the child. It, it, David was being punished because of his adultery and murder. And there can be other situations like that. If you think about perhaps a mother who is smoking or drinking during her pregnancy and experiences a miscarriage, or you think about a father who's perhaps 
driving drunk, gets in an accident, and ends up killing one of his children. And so the situation with David has that similarity of, of his sin, um, not just contributing, but causing this child's death. David has received the news that he'll be punished in this way, and he's hoping that God is going to be merciful, which is really to say he's hoping that God is going to change his mind. And so David has committed himself to um, very deep and sincere fasting and praying and mourning for this child, and that's where we're going to go ahead and pick up. If you look with me in 2 Samuel 12 at verse 15, says, Nathan went to his house, that's after Nathan gave David this news about losing this child, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and the child became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground, and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise David from the ground. Did you see how much he's grieving? He would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. So they were concerned that if David looked this upset while the child was alive, then how much worse might things be after the child is dead? He could even harm himself. Verse 19, But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. And then David arose from the earth, and he washed and anointed himself, and he changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. And then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you rose and ate food. And so David's servants, they looked on and they were confused by the way that David grieved because what happens is we'll project our, or you could even say they were confused by the way David wasn't grieving. We project ourselves on others and they assumed that he would have grieved more after the child died. When he wasn't, they were confused by what he was doing. And this brings us to lesson one. People grieve differently. Lesson one, people grieve differently. Just as a reminder, I told you last week we're going to be doing something a little different in this morning's sermon and last Sunday's sermon, approaching the verses more devotionally than expositionally like I normally do. Didn't go to any commentaries, wasn't, was trying to avoid seeing what any men might say about these verses, wanting instead to hear um, what the Lord would have me share with all of you. And so here's the, one of the first you know, thoughts that came to mind is how people grieve differently. And as David's servants looked on, that's why they were confused here. Grieving is normal. Nobody should feel bad about it. God even, you could say, gives us an entire book about grieving. If I, I mean, certain uh, topics come to mind associated with books. For example, if I say, what's the book of wisdom, what do you say? Proverbs. If I said, if I said you know, Job is most associated with what topic? Suffering. Suffering. If I said the Song of Solomon, you could say most associated with romance. Well, there is uh, a book associated with grieving. I would say Lamentations is a book about lamenting or mourning, many of the Psalms also dealing with lamenting because God wants to instruct us and teach us about, about mourning and grieving. Ecclesiastes 3, 4, it says there's a time to weep, there's a time to mourn. Romans 12, 15, we're told to weep with those who weep. We would not be told that, obviously, if there was something wrong with grieving. So David's servants, so nothing wrong with grieving, but David's servants couldn't understand his grieving, or they couldn't understand the the lack of grieving. And people can have the same confusion today. 
when they look at others and they think, well, if I was in this situation, this is what I would do, or this is how I would feel, or this is how I would act if I was experiencing that. And so when they see someone who's not acting the same way, then it can lead to that confusion because we don't grieve the same. Consider this. Some people, when they're grieving, what they might want more than anything else is to be with others, whether it's family or friends, perhaps their church family. But for other people, when they're grieving, what do they want more than anything else? To be alone. They might not want to see anyone. Some people, they want to stay busy. They kind of want to keep their minds occupied with something else. They don't want to have to be thinking about what has transpired. Other people, the last thing they want is to be busy. They don't want to do anything other than just, you know, have this time alone where they can perhaps rest or relax. Some people, they want to listen to Christian music. Other people, they want to read, hopefully read scripture. Other people might want to go on a walk. And so the point is what? That there's this liberty regarding how all of us grieve. Last week, I mentioned my brother's death. And I told you that I had received, just to give you another uh, detail about that, I would received that news on a Wednesday night. My dad had called me, and uh, just that fact alone, I knew something was wrong because my dad doesn't, doesn't call me. I can think in my life, that's about the only time I can remember my dad calling me, and my mom's normally the one to, to call me. If you know my dad, he doesn't, he doesn't talk a whole lot, whereas my mom does, okay? And so dad called me, and he, he gave me the news that Jason had overdosed. And they were about three and a half hours away, and they could tell that the, the news had hit me really hard. And so they drove down that Wednesday night for us to be together. And then we spent Saturday, or we spent Thursday, the following day at my apartment. And I could say that that was probably the worst day of my life. I, I thought that I couldn't handle another day like that. And so on Friday, I made the decision to go back to school and to stay busy and to spend some time with my students. And when I, before the kids came into the classroom, I can remember they all lined up outside um, like they normally did, but there was a, there was a certain uh, somber tone with them. I think maybe the principal had caught them and told them what had happened. And so to their credit, they were all able to kind of read me and they came in very quietly. I appreciated the, their gentleness with which they dealt with me that day. But uh, the reason I'm telling you this is there's these two gentlemen that I used to play racquetball with. One of them was, worked at the district office as a mentor to teachers, and he was my mentor, and then the other one was the assistant principal. And they asked me that day if I wanted to play racquetball, and I did definitely uh, want to play racquetball. My big concern, though, was that when I showed up at the gym to play, that they were going to start asking me a lot of questions about my brother, which was pretty much the last thing I wanted. And so when I got to the gym and I saw them there, and they kind of looked at me, they never said anything about my brother. And for the next, you know, two or three hours, we just played racquetball. And, you know, to me, it was wonderful. It was, it was what I needed. Perhaps other people might have wanted to, to talk, but that wasn't what I wanted. And the reason I mention this is that my suspicion is if people were to, to walk by, obviously they wouldn't guess when I was playing racquetball that I had lost my brother recently. Other people might look on, and they could even judge me and, they, and think, well, I can't believe, you know, he lost his brother and how this, this is how he's responding. I can't believe that, you know, he, he would be out playing racquetball like this. But for me, I, I thought it was um, very therapeutic, you know, as I kind of reflect on that. Then the approach that I took isn't something that I would change. I do believe that it worked well for me and, and allowed me to uh, process my grief, continuing to stay busy as a school teacher. Now, my mom, on the other hand, and I she took a different approach. She also, well, she actually took the same approach. She went back to work like I did. And 
but it didn't work for her. Mom ended up having this breakdown, and they had to take her in this ambulance. They had to drive her um, to the hospital, and then she didn't go back to work for some time after that. Then her and dad went away, I believe, went to Oregon to spend some time together alone to process all that. And so my point, and there's liberty regarding either approach. In my situation, I think that it worked well for me to return to work and stay busy. In my mom's situation, it did not work well for her to return to work and stay busy. She needed an amount of time to to rest and process what had happened. And so my point simply is that people can grieve differently. There should never be any judgment or condemnation regarding the different approaches that people take. But with that said, I do want to give you three encouragements regarding grieving. And I think this applies to all of us, whether you've lost a child or not, simply because we live in a fallen world and grief is something all of us experience and have to work through. Now, first, if you're one of the people, perhaps who takes the approach I did, and you want to stay busy and you return to work or you engage in some number of things that allow you to not have to think too too much about what has taken place, or you could even say maybe it's a way of trying to avoid dealing with the grief, that's a very reasonable approach. But I will say that there has to be a point at which you process the grief. You accept what has happened, and you work through it. Hopefully you work through it with the Lord, whether that's um, going to Him in prayer or reading through the Scriptures, listening to, to Christian music. The reason I say this is if you decide to stay busy and it's your way of kind of putting off what has happened and you don't deal with that grief, there's going to be a point at which it surfaces and you have to deal with it. And it could be at a time when you, when, um, you, know, you weren't ready for that. It can have detrimental or even perhaps devastating consequences to you or, or even the people around you. And so, yes, you can stay busy, but there's got to be that point at which you accept what has happened and you work through it, again, hopefully with the Lord. Now, the second thing I'd say, if you're one of those people who grieves and you kind of take that opposite approach, you, um, you, know, you don't want to be busy. You basically want to withdraw from your obligations or responsibilities. I will be the first to say that I think that's a very reasonable approach. I mean, when some people are experiencing uh, heavy loss, then the best thing for them is to not try to deal with all of the responsibilities in their lives, whether that's work or whether that's relationships. But I will say this. Those people have to re-engage at some point. They can't continue to avoid all the responsibilities that they have indefinitely. And you could hear me say that and you could say, well, Pastor Scott, you're probably saying that because there are different people that they have obligations toward, perhaps friends or perhaps family or perhaps their work. And that's true. If some, when someone withdraws from their responsibilities or obligations, yes, there are other people who, who um, are then forced to deal with those, those burdens. And they should. I mean, that's a small sacrifice to make for someone who's grieving, to pick up some of that slack or shoulder some of those things while that person grieves. But it's actually detrimental to the person who's grieving to withdraw for too long. And what, why is that? Just think about it for a moment. What has God created us to do or what has God created us for? He's created us to work. He has created us to serve Yes, we're to rest. I mean, that's the pattern, six days of working, one day of rest, but there are six days of working. It is in our best interest to work. And yes, there can be some circumstances that take place in our lives that cause us to rest more than other times, like 
loss or grief, but there has to be that point at which we re-engage with our responsibilities because if we don't, then it can be even detrimental to us mentally, emotionally, physically, um, spiritually. The third encouragement that I would give you is this. You have considerable liberty regarding how you grieve, but there is one thing you must avoid. And I, I, I say it with the authority of Scripture behind my counsel. When you gr- because, you know, there are all these examples of grief in Scripture. All these exam- I mean, we could have an entire sermon. We just looked last week and this morning about people losing a child, but there are plenty of other examples of people grieving in Scripture and doing so much differently from each other. We'd have entire sermons about that because it's God's way of saying it's okay to grieve and it's okay to grieve differently from others. But God's word does say that there's one thing we must avoid when we grieve. And what's that? The absence of hope. The absence of hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep or those who have lost loved ones that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. So liberty regarding how we grieve, but the one thing we must ensure we avoid is the absence of hope, and this brings us to lesson two, we must grieve with hope. Lesson two, we must grieve with hope. And this makes sense if we understand who those are who grieve without hope. Who are the people who grieve without hope? The world or unbelievers. Ephesians 2.12, listen to this. Paul says, you were separated from Christ. So he's talking about believers when they were unbelievers. You were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so when Paul tells believers to grieve, but to grieve with hope, what is he basically saying? He's saying grieve, but just don't grieve like an unbeliever. Don't grieve as the world grieves. And why is that the case? I mean, just think about it. What is it like to grieve as, what would it be like to grieve as an unbeliever? I mean, it is a hopeless situation. What hope could they have? What can they think about? There's nothing but, but loss, there was a, one of my, uh, I don't know if I'd say it's a fear, that's probably too strong of a word, is being asked to officiate unbelieving uh, funerals or funerals for unbelievers. And it took place one time. I didn't know the family. They wanted to use the church. They didn't have someone to officiate. I was hoping they weren't going to ask me. They ended up asking me. And so I said, okay, I'll officiate the wedding, or I mean, I'll officiate the funeral under a couple circumstances. First, you have to allow me to share the gospel. And they didn't even really know what the gospel was. They just thought it was some Christian thing or spiritual thing, and they allowed me to do that. And then the second thing was I said I couldn't be um, told to, to share something or teach something that I didn't think was true, and I basically left it at that, which is to say that if they wanted me to say that this loved one that had died was in heaven, that that was something that I wasn't going to do. Because that, that's the pressure you feel officiating an unbelieving funeral is that you're going to be forced to say something that you can't in good conscience say because it's just not true. And, and it's not good to lie even for sentimental or philosophical reasons. In other words, it's not good to lie just to encourage people. 
I mean, one of the worst things you can do is give people false hope. And so I officiated this funeral. I was thankful for the opportunity to share the gospel with, uh, a, I think the, it was a fairly large funeral here, filled with unbelievers. I mean, to me, that was a wonderful blessing. But it, it felt like I had to navigate this very delicately because the, I think many of them might have been waiting for me to say the things that they wanted to hear, like this person is in heaven and, and they're at peace. I mean, you can't say that, can you? Can you can it, when an unbeliever dies, can you say that unbeliever is at peace? When it, I mean, you can't do that unless you're going to be dishonest. Now, here's the whole reason I'm sharing this. Officiating that funeral, to me, felt like a very hopeless situation. That is the word that I would use that day in officiating that. I, could not, I couldn't um, share any hope associated with that person's passing. Besides the fact that grieving without hope is grieving like an, un, an unbeliever, is there any other reason that God would tell us to make sure we don't grieve without hope? Or let me say it like this. Is there any other reason that God would tell us to grieve with hope? There is. Because if you grieve without hope, especially if you do so for too long, then it can lead to, to what? It can lead to despair. Listen to these verses as Paul discusses this. 2 Corinthians 4.8, he says, we are afflicted in every way. I mean, Paul knew suffering better than most of us could ever imagine. And then he says, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, we're confused. And if you remember from last Sunday's sermon, one of the lessons was you can be confused. On this side of heaven, we don't get answers to the reasons of suffering. We don't find out why there is that diagnosis. We don't find out why there is that loss. We don't find out why this, why this accident happened to us and not somebody else. We don't find out why we, why we look unfortunate and someone else looks fortunate. So we can be confused. There's nothing wrong with that. We just want to ensure that we maintain our faith and trust in the Lord. And that's what Paul says. He says, we are perplexed or we are confused, but we're not driven to despair. Now, what is, it, what is despair? Just think about it. I'd say a simple definition of despair is the absence of hope. To despair is to have no hope. What does it mean to have no hope? It means to despair. The next verse, Paul says, we're persecuted, but we're not forgotten, or excuse me, we're not forsaken. I don't think I don't mean to offend anyone when I say this. Maybe this will change in the future, but I don't think as, a, as Americans we understand persecution. I don't think that we are persecuted again. Maybe we will be at some point, but I don't think we are now. And we definitely aren't like Paul was. I mean, for, for Paul, persecution was either death at, at, or it was torture. And so Paul knew this. And so he's persecuted, suffering terribly. And when we're suffering terribly, what is one of the common temptations to think that God has forsaken us or abandoned us or left us because you say, well, why is this happening to me except that God must be done with me or anger with me or have abandoned me? And so Paul makes the point, no, we're not forsaken. The Lord has not left us. And I mention this because when we're suffering, we need to remember that God has not forsaken us either. Now, Paul could have been talking about friends or believers who were either with him or we're praying for him when he comes to the end of his life. Second Timothy was the last epistle that Paul wrote, and he did say that everyone has abandoned me except for Luke and the Lord. But at this time when he says I'm not forsaken, 
there were probably some number of believers who were still with him, churches praying for him. But most importantly, Paul was committed to remembering that the Lord himself had not forsaken him. He goes on, and it's the same thing we need to remember. And then Paul goes on and he says, we're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. And that is the, that is the, the next end following grief without hope goes to despair, which goes to being destroyed. This is why it is so bad to grieve without hope, why it's so bad to despair, because it can lead to being destroyed. And he said, what does it mean to be destroyed? In this sense, to be destroyed is to be so overtaken or consumed with grief that you become uh, ineffective in your relationship with the Lord or in your service to Him, in your relationship with others. You are so overwhelmed by grief that it, it controls you. For some people, they're so overwhelmed by grief that they harm themselves. What was David? What was the fear David's servants had when they looked at him? That he would harm himself, which is to say, it seems to me that they were afraid he might commit suicide, which which is the the most extreme situation that can take place with despairing people. A few, I don't know how long ago it was. I'm not the best at remembering times. Maybe a few months ago or a year ago. Greg Laurie had an associate pastor at his church who committed suicide. Does anyone remember that? That is the most extreme or devastating situation that can happen for people who grieve without hope or who despair or who are destroyed. Now listen to this, John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and to destroy. And we need to remember this. We need to remember that this is exactly what the devil wants to do with every single person who is grieving. The devil would love nothing more than to see that grief push people away from the Lord so that they despair and then are destroyed. Now, I can't say that I always handle every person's grief perfectly, but there's at least one thing that I try to do that I, I might encourage you to do as well. I shared last Sunday that when you are allowed into someone's grief— you should generally be quiet. But you can pray. And one thing you can pray or should pray is that the Lord or that this grief would be used to draw people closer to Christ, to press people into a more intimate relationship with Him. Because you need to know that at that moment, the devil wants to see nothing more than the opposite of that and for people to turn from the Lord. And so for me, when I'm with people and they're grieving, I'm, I'm not saying much outwardly, but at least inwardly I'm praying. I'm saying, Lord, draw them closer to yourself. Use, use this in their lives for them to turn to you, to look to you for comfort. To, that they might even come out of this with a closer, sweeter, more intimate relationship with you because we know based on John 10.10 what the devil wants, nothing more or he wants nothing more for them than to see them turn from the Lord. Now, I want to give you an idea what it looks like to be consumed with grief. We do have some pictures of it in Scripture. One of the best happens to be a few chapters later if you want to turn to chapter 18. You're probably in 2 Samuel 12. Turn to 2 Samuel 18. The context for this is David just received the news that he's lost another son. 
Absalom. We're going to read through these verses pretty quickly as well. Look at me in chapter 18, verse 33. Or one, one thing. I, let me give you kind of the context of this too, just so the verses make sense as we read. This is following the battle where Absalom was killed. Now, if you remember, you had David's men who were fighting, and who are they fighting against? Absalom's army, which was basically the army of the nation of Israel. And so David's men get this victory, and then they see David restored to the throne that his son Absalom had been sitting on. And so it was, it should have been this very joyful moment. It was a moment of great victory for Absalom, this evil man, to be removed from the throne and for David to be put back in his rightful place. But as the, as the army returns to the city and they enter back in through the gate, guess who happens to be above the gate sobbing? David. And so David really could, probably could not have chosen a worst place to do what we're about to read in these verses. Because as all, I mean, how, how do armies typically return from battle when they've been victorious? <laughs> Joyfully. Now all of this joy is going to be turned to sadness as they pass through the gate and they have to listen to David as we see him in these verses. So look at me at verse 33. The king was deeply moved. He went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you or if I would have died in your place? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Chapter 19, verse 1. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. Now, let's pause right here and talk about Joab for a moment. Joab is David's nephew. He is also his fierce and ruthless general. He, uh, there's no record of him losing a battle in Scripture. I mean, to his credit, he seemed to have been one of the most proficient and, and talented generals in all, in all of Scripture. He also happened to be an ungodly man. As much as, as much as Scripture speaks well of his military prowess, there's no hint of him uh, ever praying or showing a, you know, much spiritual, uh, a spiritual bone in his body. And the reason I mention that is even Joab, in his ungodliness, could look at, at David and realize that David was grieving how? Without hope. Or he could look at David and recognize that David was despairing. Or he could look at hope, or he could look at David and think that David was approaching being destroyed. And so Joab knew that something had to change here with David, that he he could not continue like this. He's neglecting his responsibilities. And so, I mean, when we talk about that earlier, perhaps, perhaps David could have, you know, taken a break, but I'm not even sure as the king of Israel that he could do that. I mean, to be the king of Israel is to give up some of the freedoms that other people have, right? I mean, Paul said that as an apostle. We should be able to do these things. You know, I won't. I should be able to take a wife. He knew there were some things that just came with the job. And that's the case when you're the king of the nation of Israel. There are too many people counting on you. So look in verse 2. The victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day. And they said, the king is grieving his son. And the people stole into the city that day. As people, so they came in quietly, silently, as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face. The king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Verse 5. Then Joab came into the house to the king. And do you remember last week we talked about tone? How it's hard to tell the tone at times? Like, for example, when Elijah is speaking to that woman and he says, Give me your son. I think, I think the prophet said that very gently or tenderly to the woman because he loved her, he cared for her and her family. 
okay, I don't think that's what Joab did here. In other words, I don't think that Joab said this gently or tenderly to David. I think he gave David a very strong rebuke. He said, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. All these men, they risked their lives for you because, because you love those who hate you, referring to Absalom, and you hate those who love you, referring to the men who risked their lives for him. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. And then the king arose, he took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And then all the people came before the king. And so Joab appropriately rebuked David because he saw how much David had to lose if he continued neglecting his responsibilities, if he didn't re-engage them. Now, let's talk for a moment, and then I'll connect the dots after. Why David was grieving like this? Because it's a pretty tremendous contrast from 2 Samuel 12 to 2 Samuel 18. I mean, when the son in 2 Samuel 12 died, David picks himself up, anoints himself, washes himself off, goes in the house of the Lord and worships, consumes food. He couldn't look more different in this account, and why is that? Because David knew he wasn't going to see this son again. He knew that Absalom was an unrepentant murderer, an unrepentant rapist. He was an individual on his way to hell. And so, I mean, it's interesting. If I was to ask you, if I said, tell me verses you know that give you revelation of heaven or hell, I bet almost every single verse you would give me would be from the New Testament. And why is that? Because there's almost no revelation of heaven or hell in the Old Testament. I, I've said before, revelation is progressive in that there's more revelation over time given, and it's cumulative in that revelation builds off previous revelation. So we live with the most revelation that's ever been given. But for people in the Old Testament, when they talked about death, I mean, that's why death sounds so dismal in the book of Ecclesiastes, right? When most people talked about death in the Old Testament, where did they say they were going? Sheol, the pit, the grave, and you say Sheol. I mean, some, you might even say, what is Sheol, or where is Sheol, or is that good, or is it bad? Well, that's the thing. It wasn't really good or bad. It was just the abode of the dead, whether the righteous dead or the unrighteous dead. No discussion of eternal punishment, no discussion of eternal reward. Now, David, on the other hand, had been given greater insight than most people in the Old Testament, if not everyone in the Old Testament, and so David could write Psalm 23, and what could he say, or where could he say he would be forever? I will be where? In the house of the Lord. I think it's Psalm 23, verse 6. So David had been given this insight that he would be with the Lord. And guess who he knew wouldn't be there with him? Absalom. And so he sobs like this. He grieves without hope. Now with this fairly discouraging, understandably fairly discouraging image in mind, I want you to see a very encouraging 
image. I mean, it, the reason we're looking at this is I want you to see what it looks like to grieve without hope. I want you to see what it looks like to despair. I want you to see what it looks like for someone to be destroyed <clears throat> if... Je- <clears throat> <clears throat> If Joab hadn't come along and given David the swift kick that he needed, now turn to 2 Samuel 12 to see the encouraging complimentary image to this. And I, I just want you to kind of come up out of the verse. I just want, to pi- I want you to picture this dramatic contrast that took place in David in chapter 12. Not between 12 and 18, although there's a considerable contrast there. But the contrast, even in chapter 12, you've got David. I mean, in verse 16, he's on the ground. His servants can't lift him from the ground. He's fasting. He lays there all night. He won't eat anything. He goes from that to verse 20. He arises. He washes himself. He anoints himself. He changes his clothes. He goes into the house, Lord. He's even able to worship. Then he sits down. He asks for food. It's brought to him, and he eats. He moves from terrible grief to picking himself up, washing himself, anointing himself, eating and worshiping. The change in David was so strong that what? His servants looked on and were confused. They asked him about it. And so you can wonder, if you're reading the verses, you can wonder why the strong change in David. Well, wonderfully, you get to see why the strong change in David because the servants asked why it took place in verse 21, the servant said, what is this thing that you've done? You fasted, wept for the child while he's alive. The child dies, you arise and eat food. And David gives the answer. Look in verse 22. While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now the child is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? And then notice this, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So what caused this dramatic change in David? You could say the child died, and so he gave up fasting and weeping. Or he gave up fasting and praying because he wanted to see that the child would live, and once the child died, there was no more reason for that. That's partly true. But the real reason that David was able to pick himself up or be encouraged is contained in what words? I shall go to him. I shall go to him. That's why David was able to pick himself up. That's why he was able to continue on. That's where his encouragement and his comfort came from. There was nothing encouraging about the child dying. It would be wrong to think that David was encouraged or comforted by the child's death. That's what discomforted him. That's what discouraged him. The comfort he experienced it's from what he told himself. I shall go to him. He would be reunited with his son, and this brings us to lesson three. Believing parents are reunited with believing children they've lost. Believing parents are reunited with believing children they've lost. And one reason I wanted to look at this is in this account, Second Samuel 12, I mean, let me just ask this. In Second Samuel 12, this is not a trick question, Did David grieve in 2 Samuel 12? Yeah, very much so. He grieved, but you get to see what it looks like to grieve what? With hope. He's not despairing here. He's not going to be despaired. He's not going to be destroyed. This is what it looks like to grieve as one who had hope. Now, it would be wrong to think that 
David's grief ever stopped. I don't think parents ever stop um, grieving for a child. I haven't lost a child, so I don't know exactly what it's like. I mean, I can guess, but at least as a, as a son who has parents who lost a child, I don't think they ever move on from that. I don't think the grief ever stops. My brother's birthday was August 13th. He passed away. Uh, October will be the, when the anniversary occurs. And every year it's the same with my mom. You know, I, we communicate and the, the grief never goes away when you've, when you've lost a child. And so my whole point is it would be wrong to think that David ever stopped grieving the loss of this child. But it would also be wrong to think that he couldn't have any hope or be comforted in the midst of his grief because he was able to grieve as a believer. Now, after my brother passed away I, and I went back to school, my principal, the one I played racquetball with, who was also, I consider, a pretty good friend, invited me into his office. I think he was concerned about how I was doing and he wanted to check in with me. Maybe he was even concerned about if I was going to have a breakdown in my classroom with my students or something. And he was talking to me. And I remember something he said that, um, you know, I probably won't forget. He said, it's every parent's nightmare to have to bury their child. It's every parent's nightmare to have to bury their child. And... Jim and Chris had to live this nightmare recently. And I received their permission to share this next part. When we're at the graveside service on Friday, it was, as you'd expect, very somber. Nobody talked. Pastor Nathan shared a message I thought was uh, wonderful, very encouraging. But other than that, you didn't hear anything or anyone. And everyone kind of circled around, you know, Jim and Chris. And they were asked if they wanted to share anything. Would have been completely fine if they didn't share anything. Jim shared. I thought for having been put on the moment, I was um, blessed and encouraged by what he shared. It was articulate. I thought it was a fantastic example of the faith and hope that a parent could feel or experience in a situation like that. And then Chris shared. And this is what Chris said. We will miss Brandon very much, but we will get to see him later. That's what she said. Same thing David said. We will miss Brandon very much, but we will get to see him later. So Jim and Chris were grieving, have been grieving, but they've been grieving, like Paul said, they've been grieving as people with hope, comforted by the reality that they will be reunited with Brandon. Now, in most of these accounts in Scripture, when children died, they're raised from the dead, and you get to see the children restored to their parents. Just listen to a few examples. Last week, we looked at Elijah, 1 Kings 17, 23. Elijah took the child and delivered him to his mother. Jump forward with Elisha, 2 Kings 4, 36. When the mother came to Elisha, he said, pick up your son. She gets her son back. Jump to the New Testament, David, or I mean, uh, Jesus. Luke 7, 15, the dead child, after Jesus raised the child from the dead, sat up, began to speak, and Jesus, very tenderly, gave him to his mother. So we repeatedly see deceased children being given back to their parents. And in this account with David, it looks like that didn't happen. It looks like David is not reunited 
with his son, or it looks like his son has not returned to him. But he would be. He would be. And this hope that David have, has or had is the hope all believing parents have with their believing children. Is it going to happen in this life? No, it's not going to happen in this life, but it is going to happen in the next life. And if there's one, one lesson that I, I hope can most encourage you, it's this one. While I don't think it eases the pain, it doesn't ease the loss, I do think it provides great hope. I don't, I don't think it's... In, here's just one other you know, piece of pastoral counsel to share with you if you're ever with people that are grieving. Don't ever try to lessen or minimize their grief. Don't try to... Rem, don't allow them to grieve. It is not your responsibility to come on the scene. I, almost, I can almost guarantee you if you try to lessen people's grief, you will make it worse. Don't bring any of the cliches. Don't tell them God's grace is sufficient for you. The only thing you can do is provide hope. That comforts. But don't try to limit or minimize the grief because Scripture doesn't do that. Scripture doesn't say anything bad about grief or allow us to think that there's too much of it. But it does say that there should be an amount of hope for, or comfort while people are grieving. And this is what is very hopeful or encouraging in this situation when a child dies, that believing children, that believing parents see their believing children again. As I studied these verses this week, here's what came to mind. David was comforted at the thought of seeing his son again. We can be comforted at the thought of seeing our believing loved ones again. But really, how much more comforted should we be at the thought of seeing our Savior, our Lord, who took the punishment for our sins. David had this great hope that he would see his son again, but how much greater is our hope that we will see Christ? Titus 2.13, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our blessed hope, and this brings us to our last lesson. The hope we have in Christ combats grief. The hope we have in Christ combats grief. Go ahead and turn to Job 19. I want to show you someone who had this hope during his grief. Job 19, we won't turn anyplace else this morning. We can all acknowledge, I hope, that nobody ever had to grieve as much as Job, right? I mean, we talk about losing a child. Someone was talking to me just at first service, saying a, a father himself, and said, "I can't imagine what that what what that's like, what the what the Rayleighs are going through." And we do we all say that. We all say, "I can't imagine what that's like to think of losing a child." Job lost all his children. He lost all of his children. At the same time, he lost all his children and he lost everything else. If there was anything to lose, he lost it. The only thing he didn't lose was his wife, which when you see what kind of woman she was, you could wish she had been lost too, right? I mean, once she starts talking, you see why the devil let her live. I'm serious. Well, why, why would the devil take everyone and everything else from Job and allow that woman to remain? Because she was his servant. I mean, what, what kind of person is going to come and say, curse God and die, except a servant of Satan. And that's why, why he let her live. But every, so anything good in his life was taken, and anything bad was left. And I'm painting that picture because 
Job is experiencing this horrendous grief that I think is just unfathomable to any of us. And I want you to see how he encouraged himself. Look at verse 25. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And I want you to see how Job saw his Redeemer. When Job thought of his Redeemer, he, he didn't think of a force. He, he didn't think of some heretical, uh, something heretical like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. He wasn't, the Redeemer wasn't a concept. The Redeemer wasn't a spirit or a ghost. The Redeemer was a person, and a person that Job knew would stand on the earth victoriously at the end of time. And I mention that because that is how Job encouraged himself. That is what Job told himself that brought him comfort. Look at verse 20, 26. After my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Now, there's some important things here that are taking place with Job. We know from elsewhere in Scripture that Job thought God had hidden himself from him. You know, he couldn't understand why this is happening. Where was God through all of this? Just like we might be tempted to think God is hiding himself from us when we're suffering terribly, and we ask, where is God in all of this? Job couldn't understand why God would treat him this way. Just like we might wonder why God is treating us the way we're being treated when we're suffering terribly. But at the same time, and this is very important, Job knew that God wasn't going to stay hidden from him forever. Notice what he said. He said he would see him in his flesh. And this is interesting. Job said, my skin will be destroyed. What did Job's skin look like at this moment? I mean, I think it's Proverbs, or I think it's Job 2, 7, where it says that he'd been afflicted with boils from his head to his toes. And so his skin looked terribly. It wasn't much to say that his skin would be destroyed. He probably looked about at this moment like it was destroyed. But in the next verse, he says, in my flesh I will see God. And so what do you say? You're like, which is it? I mean, his flesh is destroyed or his flesh, or he'll see God in his flesh. His skin is destroyed or he'll see God in his skin. Is it destroyed or does he have it? And it's yes. His skin is destroyed, but he's going to receive what? A glorified body. He, I mean, if David had tremendous insight in the Old Testament, Job did as well. Job's written before any books. And so, I mean, it's written before the books of Moses. It's the oldest book in the Bible. And so, and so you could say, well, what, did, what happened with people who didn't have the Scripture like we do, or even like most people throughout the Old Testament did? Apparently, God gave them divine revelation. I mean, how could Enoch be a prophet? He heard from God just as, as Noah did. And so God had clearly revealed to Job that he was going to receive a glorified body. And it just seems to me that this is something God wants this church knowing or understanding. Last Sunday, we talked about this, 1 Corinthians 15, 53. This perishable body must put on the perishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality, referring to our glorified bodies. If you were at the celebration of life yesterday for Brandon, Pastor Nathan talked about this too. And now with Job, we see it coming up again, this reality that we receive these glorified bodies. And in these bodies, we will see God himself. And look what this produced in Job, verse, the end of verse 27. 
He says, how my heart yearns within me. He's saying my heart is overwhelmed at the thought of seeing my Redeemer. Now, when I think about times in my life when I have felt overwhelmed or my, my heart was just overflowing, probably when I held my children when they were born, I don't know that there's anything else. I think that's, those are the only times when I can say that I really felt like my heart was overwhelmed, just like it was going to explode with joy and thankfulness. And I mention that because that's what Job says here at the thought of seeing Christ. And so when I think of this man on that ash heap, all he's suffering, all he's going through, and the thought of seeing his Savior face to face could cause his heart to be overwhelmed. It makes me think how much hope or encouragement we can have too, because I'm, I am so thankful that the Rayleighs know they will see Brandon again. I'm so thankful people have encouraged them with that reality. I am so thankful that they understand that reality. I'm so thankful that all of us believers can look forward to seeing our believing loved ones again. But have you ever thought about this? The scripture doesn't say that very much. Scripture does not, if you think about heaven, there's not a bunch of verses telling you to look forward to seeing your lost loved ones. When scripture wants to encourage you about heaven, how does it encourage you? You're going to see your savior. You're going to see your redeemer who has suffered for you and taken the punishment that you're sins deserve. So we're thankful we can see our loved ones, but the other blessing that it seems God wants to emphasize to us is that even more importantly, we're going to get to see Jesus face to face, knowing him fully as we are fully known, and our hearts should be overflowing at that thought. Father, we thank you for this reality. We thank you for the joy and comfort that it brings us. I pray that our hearts would be overwhelmed at that reality that we will get to see our Lord and Savior face to face and be with him for eternity. There are some people, and maybe they don't have loved ones that they can think about seeing again. And for those people, encourage them with that truth that they will get to see Christ. For others who have loved ones that they get to see and are greatly encouraged by that reality, and I count myself in that category, we thank you for the uh, added blessing that we get to see our Savior. And so remind us of this, remind us of what, of what took place in Job's life so that we can be comforted and encouraged in our faith. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.